I'm Dr. Megan Corredo, and welcome to Real Stories, a podcast that features the narratives of trauma survivors, professionals, and community leaders. Real Stories provides a platform for guests with diverse life experiences to voice and honor their unique narratives. During today's episode, we will be speaking with Donna Harris. Donna, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Yes. So can we start off with you telling us a little bit about who you are? Sure. Um, Let's see. I'm old. So I'm 61 years old and I identify as a black female, which Mm -hmm. is pretty important to me. That's a pretty important aspect of my life. Um, And I do a lot of different things in a variety of different settings. And I've lived in a lot of different places. So okay. that definitely has impacted my life. Where have you lived? I've started, I was born in California, actually, okay. but didn't stay there for very long. And I grew up until the age of 10 in Brooklyn, New York. And after that, lived in Brussels, Belgium for 10 years mm. and came back to this country to go to college. Okay. Um, and spent time in Vermont and New York, and now I'm in Pennsylvania. Okay. So you would say that all of those different experiences kind of contribute to who you are now? Absolutely. Without a doubt. Mm. So tell us a little bit about what you do. Hmm. Well, I like to help clients and students and professionals address issues related to their own personal trauma, but also racial trauma and overall feelings of marginalization, Mm. you know, because these happen in a variety of ways in terms of people's relationships, both at home and at work and just in life. Mm. So you're a licensed clinical social worker, right? I am. And then you're also educating people about the impact of racial trauma as well. So there's kind of like this, this individual work that you're engaging in, but also this like larger systemic work. Is that, is that correct? Absolutely. So I have two different uh, businesses uh, and I have intercultural counseling and that's my private practice, which focuses on my clinical work with individuals and couples. Mm -hmm. And also I launched intercultural network, which focuses on the broader aspects of dealing with racism, marginalization and systemic oppression in terms of workshops and trainings for professionals and and lay people as well and educators. Okay. And how how long have you been a practicing clinician? Forever. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I have been practicing probably since 1989, I would say. Mm -hmm. So it's been a while. Okay. And then how long have you been in this space where you've been supporting other professionals, other clinicians in addressing racial trauma? That's actually a lot more recent. You know, okay. that, um, I'm, I don't know whether I'm a late bloomer or not, but I think, you know, a lot of things in my life have impacted me, as I said before. And part of that is living in different places mm-hmm. and learning to function in predominantly white spaces. Mm-hmm. So um, I want to give you a little history on that because I think context is important. Sure. You know, when, when I lived in Europe, I, um, learned how to speak the language. Mm -hmm. I had to, I had no choice because I went to French speaking schools and 
really benefited in some aspects from being an American abroad in a country that was a colonizing country. Mm. I didn't fully understand all of this when I was 10 years old, but later certainly understood the impact of this. So what that meant for me was that I kind of became a chameleon and Mm. I received lots of accolades for being able to acculturate very quickly into different circumstances, different cultures, different languages. And so I, I got lots of kudos and props for, you know, being an American who could speak French flawlessly without an accent, Mm. Um, being a black person, but, and here's, here's the tricky part, which is, is not, um, so nice, but being a black person who's not an African from the Congo, which was the Belgian Congo at the time. Hmm. So, you know, that's that's a different type of racism when you're living abroad and um, it's focused more on a colony or people from a particular colony than it is here. You know. OK. Um, so that meant that I was basically I grew up being able to be anything that people needed me to be. Hmm. Which, and that was starting at the age, at a very early age too, right? Yeah. Well, I moved there when I was ten. Um, wow. Was, and this was in the sixties, right? So this is nineteen sixty nine when I moved to Europe. So right at the tail end of the civil rights movement and all of that, I moved to Europe with my parents, and um, it, you know that had a huge impact on me. I'm sure. Hmm. Uh, because also I was an immigrant. All right. So I was there as an immigrant in a different country. So I've had that experience too. Mm. So all those things kind of collectively shaped um, where you are now. Slowly, but surely. Yes. Okay. (laughs) So I'm sure you didn't realize as a 10 year old, you know, that this is, this is the space where you would end up, but kind of looking back, you can say, wow, all those experiences collectively impacted who you are now. Well, you know what it did? I think it made me very curious about people. Mm. I used to spend a lot of time trying to figure out where people were from, who they were, and um, what they did. So that definitely influenced my desire to be a clinical social worker and psychotherapist. Mm. And then what would you say kind of... um initiated the process of you being in this space where you're teaching other people about the impacts of racial trauma and helping people to engage in in dialogue with each other about racism? Well, that that didn't happen until much more recently. Um, So as I said before, I was kind of this chameleon person who was able to function in a lot of different circumstances. That meant that I was able to go to good schools, And uh, I benefited from being able to work with a lot of different people in psychotherapy. But there's a cost to that, Mm. right? While it is extremely useful professionally to be able to blend in and to accommodate others, you also leave a lot of yourself at the door. Mm. And I didn't come to that realization until I was probably about 56 years old. Okay, Um, And that was because all this time, mind you, I had been teaching, you know, multiculturalism and diversity courses Mm -hmm. um, in schools of social work, both in New York and then later here, and benefited from what I was teaching and the films I was showing. And the film that impacted me the most was called The Color of Fear. Mm. And that's a film directed by Lin-Manuel 
who is the director of Stir Fry Seminars and Consulting. And he's a Chinese-American man who's a documentarian, so he's done a few films. And that film was really just, I think it's nine men of different backgrounds sitting and talking about race. Mm. And from the moment that I saw that film in this you know, again, I saw that film probably in the 90s, you know, the early 90s. Okay. I was completely uh, overwhelmed with this idea of people being able to sit down and talk, just talk about themselves, about who they are, who they are in the world, and how race has impacted them and the trauma of racism. Mm-hmm. But I really didn't understand how what all that meant to me. Until I decided at the ripe old age of 57 to actually plunge into this mindful facilitation certification course. Okay. So I did that for two years and then was an intern for a year after that. But part of that experience really included not only gaining the skill set, a very specific skill set to engage people around difficult conversations and differences, but it required me to do a deep dive into my own internalized racism, what it meant for me Mm. being in predominantly white spaces. And as I said before, what I left at the door, you know, the cost for me of Mm -hmm. um, being so good at acculturating. And that was a profound experience. Mm. And I'm wondering too. So I I think that there are some people who believe that they can engage in this work without actually reflecting on how racism impacts them. And it sounds like from your experience, you weren't able to come to a place where you were able to facilitate such rich dialogue with other people until you were able to do a deep dive into what all these things meant for you as well. Oh, absolutely. So it's like when you are a clinician, so I'm, I'm trained as a clinical social worker, as a psychoanalyst and all of that. And I've done deep dives psychologically. I mean, I know my family and all of those issues, but mm-hmm. I never did a deep dive in terms of race and what that meant to me because a lot of people in this profession are white. So mm-hmm. even though people would ask me, you know, oh, how is this for you as a black person um, in the course of therapy? Mm-hmm. I kind of skirted around that question. You know, I would say, ah, it doesn't matter or whatever, you know, I'm fine. Um, and, and no one pushed, you know, no one pressed that issue. They kind of just accepted that superficial answer. And mm-hmm. I realized looking back, that that's how I taught my classes. The reason I was successful at teaching classes on multiculturalism is because I had really good group skills. Okay. So I could facilitate a group. And I could keep the environment nice and safe for people without going too deep. But I think those early years of me teaching, really, people weren't getting as much as they could get out of the conversation. So I didn't learn that until late, until I had done my own work, as you said, and realized what it was like for me growing up in Europe as this uh, American who benefited from the unearned privilege of being American, all right, so there's that piece, in mm-hmm. a colonizing country that discriminates against people from the then Belgian Congo, then later Zaire, and now, of course, it's the Congo again. But so people were actively discriminating against them, and I was benefiting from that discrimination. Mm. 
which is really messed up when you think about it, especially as a person of color. Right. So I had to think about that and what that, how that impacted me. I had to think about the choices I've made in life. You know, I'm married to a white man and I have biracial children. Mm. So how have I benefited from, from even that, you know? Mm. Um, So I had to take a deep dive in all of that. And also I think one of the most traumatic things in that class for me was um, a black woman who we, I don't remember what we were talking about, but uh, someone was called on another black woman and mm-hmm. because she had a facial expression, it looked like something was wrong or she was pondering something. And the facilitator said, so I noticed you had a reaction. And she said, yes, because I said something and nobody listened to me. Mm. And he pressed her further and said, well, why do you think that is? And she said, well, I'm used to it as a black person, but I think in this context, since there are other black people too, Mm -hmm. I think people listen to Donna, me, because she has lighter skin privilege. Mm. And I nearly fell off my chair because I had never thought of myself as having light skin. My complexion's kind of medium, you know, I don't know, coffee, whatever. Um, And it had never occurred to me that other people darker than me might, you know, this whole colorism thing that Mm -hmm. someone might experience me as having more privilege because my skin tone was just a little lighter. I'm, you know, again, I don't consider myself light skin, Mm -hmm. but it's all a matter of perception, right? And this was in a class on diversity that you explored this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, it got intense and it was difficult, but I benefited greatly and, you know, decided that that was the work that I really wanted to focus on. Okay. Okay. So every individual, every community, every system has a story and every story includes both adversity and strength. Can you talk to us about first some of the adversities that you faced and then we'll um, kind of switch gears and explore some of the positive moments or turning points in your story. So let's start off with um, if you feel comfortable sharing some of the adversity that adversities that that you have faced in the course of your story? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I think I've probably faced fewer adversities than many. So I've been fortunate in that regard. Okay. Um, I mean, I do have a history like many women of you know, people making un- undesirable passes at me and things like that. And even um, someone somewhat molesting me um, as a child And that probably has impacted me as well and influenced my work with others around trauma. Mm -hmm. But um, I think moving, you know, moving as a 10 year old into a completely unfamiliar situation Mm -hmm. was very, very difficult. Um, As an American in particular, you know, in the United States, we don't get left back very often. You really have to have severe problems to be left mm-hmm. back here because they kind of just move people along. Right. And in Belgium, they don't, you could get left back for gym. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. So I got left back several times just because I didn't speak the language. Wow. So that in of itself was traumatizing. I was in the fifth grade four times. Wow. Which I was profoundly ashamed of, especially when I returned to the States. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, you know, it was horrible. 
just going through that. Now there, it wasn't so bad because other people had experienced that. You know, in the first community I lived in, not so much because they had never seen anybody from outside of that community. It was very homogeneous and isolated. Um, But then I moved to a community that was a lot more diverse and had more foreigners in it. And again, I was a foreigner, remember? So Mm -hmm. um, I finally kind of got with it and he was able to acculturate and speak the language and all of that, but it was extremely difficult. I was very alone and very isolated because I don't have any siblings. Okay. So there was no one really to share that experience with. Mm. So I went through all of the issues that we experience here with immigrants. You know, I was the parentified child who had to translate for my parents, you know, and look at bills and things like that and do mm-hmm. other things that, you know, kids are not necessarily um, doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to highlight. So at the beginning, when you were talking about adversity, you said, mm-hmm. I don't really feel like I've been through as much adversity um, as other people. But then mm-hmm. you named like really profound, significant <laughs> things that impacted you throughout the course of your life. And I just want to I just want to point out that sometimes when we're thinking about trauma, when we're thinking about about adversity and challenges, sometimes all of us have the tendency, myself included, um, to say like, well, it wasn't as bad as this person's experience. But like in, in reality, um, all the things that you're mentioning really had a significant impact on you. And I think it's important for us to make space for all different types of um, adversities that we may face instead of, you know, saying, oh, well, somebody's had it worse than I have. Mm-hmm. But also to say, like, it, you know, these are the things that I've experienced. And while it might not compare to what what someone else has experienced, like it impacted me. And these are still significant in my story. So I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> Oh, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I think of being molested as a child now, when I say it wasn't as bad as many people, I mean that I wasn't outright raped like many of my clients. On the other hand, I am very well aware that, you know, this was my mother's best friend's husband kind Mm. of thing who would have me sit on his lap and and, and, um, rub him in that way. And as a child, I mean, I was I was one of the lucky ones in that when I did report this, I was believed, Mm. which so many people are not. Right. So I was believed. But because it was a friendship kind of a thing, it was not acted on. And I was left with the instructions to if this occurred again, to tell him to stop and that I had told my mother. Mm. So I was given that responsibility, with I don't, which I don't think any child should have. Right. You know, the responsibility right. to face their abuser and say, stop it. Now, I did. Right. And it worked because I think he was afraid of being found out and exposed. Um, but still, I think that piece stayed with me more than anything else. The piece of being given that responsibility. Mm-hmm. And then also how how that impacts your your sense of trust, too. Oh, absolutely. Um, I really appreciate you you sharing that with us. It's not easy to talk about experiences like that, um, especially early childhood experiences. So um, so I want to acknowledge like that, that it's not easy to talk about that. And um, thank you for for feeling vulnerable, um, for, for making yourself vulnerable enough to share that with us. You're welcome. I think it's important to share, though, and to name it. Um, because there's so many people out there who aren't believed 
and who have similar experiences. And as you said before, don't even consider it abuse, you know, that we gloss over it. We say, ah, it was nothing. Right. Well, even even calling something abuse um, can feel a little bit uncomfortable um, when you're just kind of reflecting on your life experience. Um, sometimes we go through things and we don't necessarily call it trauma or we don't call it abuse or we look at someone else's experience and we say, but it's not as bad as this person's experience. It's not as bad as that person's um, instead of saying like, no, this is a part of my story and it impacted me. Mm hmm. So let, let's shift gears for for a moment. And uh, can you think of a few important positive moments or turning points in your story? Well, it's kind of a yin yang thing, right? So the whole move to Europe, um, on the one hand, it was traumatizing you know, going through that whole immigrant experience and the being left back and, and ostracized in that way. But at the same time, it gave me a skill set that I, I do value in spite of what I said before in terms of, you know, this acculturation ability, leaving part of myself at the door. I also think that it has given me a lot. It's, it's certainly influenced who I am and I think really enables me to do the work that I do now mm. because it keeps me curious about other people. You know, I want to mm -hmm. know. Mm hmm. Um, and then I'm wondering also, where do you see yourself in the future? What is your vision for yourself? Uh, keep on keeping on. I believe that this, the time is ripe right now, unfortunately and fortunately, that so many people are having this so-called awakening around issues of race and racism and oppression that I think if I, you know, we don't all strike while the iron is hot, this, this will go away. And I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to see that happen again. We've had other points in history where, you know, civil rights movement and so forth, where people were um, influenced to act. And I mm -hmm. think now is the time for us to really do, for everyone to do a deep dive mm -hmm. and for us to get curious about each other and have these conversations that are so important. Mm hmm. Absolutely. Um, what 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 do you think is necessary in order for us to kind of um, continue to allow the current movements to move as opposed to like, I don't know, I'm thinking about this as like something that has the potential to um, be really dynamic and create change or has the potential to, to fizzle out. What do you think we need collectively in order to like leverage leverage everything that's happening in society today and all of the um, all, all of the movement and the protesting to actually get somewhere? Well, we need to not get complacent. So that means we actually need to look at how that's impacting each and every one of us, not just white people, not just black people, um, but really understand and realize how racism impacts and um, affects us all in a mm -hmm. very negative way. Mm -hmm. you know, so all the white people who are wringing their hands and saying, I want to do something, you know, they have to start by doing the hard work. This is hard work, right? It's hard work for everyone. It's hard work for me. Every time I do a training, it is draining <laughs> to mm. do that. So it's a combination of willing to do the hard work and fight the fight on a daily basis, but also take time 
to recover from that too and heal and heal from racial trauma, historical trauma, all of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But to get curious, you know, what makes you, you? And, and why do you do and say the things you do? That's a really important question for everybody to be asking. Mm-hmm. Not what's wrong with you or why do you have these political views? And, you know, I was talking to somebody the other day who has an international background similar to my own. And she said something very important and profound that I had forgotten. But I think she's absolutely right. You know, something when you have an international perspective, one of the things you realize that in this country, um, when people fight or they have arguments, you know, they're, they're fighting about not just ideas and concepts, but like when you have a particular political point of view, somehow that becomes you and who you are mm. as opposed to just an opinion or a particular view. Or so a part end, of you. Yeah. It, but, but we end up having these unhelpful discussions because we don't, we end up not liking the whole person because of something they think or something they believe mm. as opposed to not liking what they say or not agreeing with what they're saying or a part of them. Right. It becomes like enmeshed in your identity as a person instead of this is a perspective that the person has. Right. So that's where the difficulty comes in because then, you know, if I think you are all of your beliefs that I disagree with that, well, then I can't talk to you. Right. Hmm. And let alone when that gets filtered through prejudice and discrimination, all of that, you know, then then you become something that I've heard about that I don't think I like. I don't even know because I haven't talked to you. Right. But, um, and everybody's guilty of that. Yeah. And and I think, too, um, speaking to what you were mentioning, it also like requires people to be OK with being uncomfortable. Mm hmm. Yep. And not everyone is willing to do that or or um, having uncomfortable conversations um, can just feel like alarming. It, it can jar us. It, it makes us feel like uh, like we're not on stable ground, but kind of figuring out how to live in that space and to still communicate with one another, even through the discomfort is really important. But it's hard. Well, it's hard because it requires a risk and. You know, with people, people are funny. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't trust that the other person's willing to take a risk. So if I stick my neck out, are you going to stick yours out too? Right. And if I have a whole history, family history, and um, you know, cultural history of people chopping off my neck, I'm going to be less likely to want to stick it out for you. Right. Right. So as there's a couple more questions that we're going to explore. Um, So are there any favorite or life-changing resources that you want to share with listeners? Oh, there are so many resources out there right now. I don't think I have a favorite. I have been bombarded um, in my many different connections on listservs and things like that, and even in my church community with resources for people. I think that's why I said now it's time to strike while the iron's hot. Because there is no excuse now for not being informed about culture, about race, um, about difference, about marginalization and oppression, because Mm -hmm. it is all over. If you have a computer or a smartphone, you are one click away from information. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But then it's what do you do with that? Right. You know, 
you have to do something with the information. <laughs> right. You can, you can do a million Google searches and, and read a million books and still not have come to a place where you understand yourself and, and your, your identity in the context of the world in a better way. Um, yeah, see, you have to take it a step further. And for me, I mean, I'm biased. I think everyone should be in therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> that is my personal bias. And I, I believe in that very strongly. But at the very least, seek out opportunities to have conversations. And and again, I'm stumbling over these things all over the place. I stumbled across something the other day, I think through LinkedIn or something and decided to join. And this is a person who does free conversations on Zoom once a month for anybody who oh, wants wow. to join in. Yeah. I mean, so there are lots of things going on. Okay. Um, it's a matter of no- taking notice of them and participating. You know, and then if you want to do the deeper dive, you know, I do trainings mm-hmm. uh, online. Stir Fry does trainings online. Mm-hmm. I'm one of their facilitators as well. Um, so, you know, there's a lot available out there. So how would people access the trainings that you provide and the trainings that Stir Fry, Stir Fry provides? Um, well, Stir Fry has an online presence. Present, so just going to stirfry.com is one way. I think actually it's stirfryseminars.com. Okay. Um, my business also has a web presence. So interculturalcounselingllc.com is one way of reaching me. Okay. But also just Googling me, I pop up. And um, whenever I'm doing something, it gets posted on Facebook, on my website, etc. But also sometimes people just reach out to me right now. Uh, I'm not the only one saying that, you know, you could, should strike by the, while the iron's hot, my phone has been ringing off the hook because all these businesses and things all of a sudden want diversity trainings. Okay. And the problem with that, I mean, for anyone trying to get that in their organization or, you know, place of business and so forth, that's great. And I applaud that. I just want to caution people that one training is not enough. Right. We have a his we have a long history of organizations doing this kind of one and done thing where we check off the box that we had some kind of diversity training. Mm-hmm. And all that does is it begins to promote awareness, which is good. Mm-hmm. That's a good place to start. You know, I applaud Robin DiAngelo for writing White Fragility. It's a great book. It's a good place to start for white folks. Um, but it's not the end. Right. And it doesn't give you the skills to have those difficult conversations and to sit with that discomfort that you're talking about. Right. And then when I when we think about other forms of trauma, we wouldn't say, um, you know, you're healed after one therapy session. So why do we Mm -hmm. think that way when we're speaking about racial trauma? Because racism really is about racial trauma. And we wouldn't say, okay, one training check like you've healed, you've recovered from all these adversities that you faced. But it's the discomfort. It's what you called me out on before when you said, you know, you glossed over something. You said, you know, my adversity is not like everybody else's. And I think we all do that to a certain extent. Who wants to sit around thinking about how racial trauma has impacted them? Right. That's painful. Right. And most of us don't want to sit in that pain. So it's it's a difficult journey, but I think it's one that's worth taking. Right. And figuring out how to not only sit in the pain, um, make space for the pain, but figure out how to move through the pain as well. Mm -hmm. Um, Knowing that, yes, there will be pain, but it doesn't always have to be painful forever. 
No, and there's nothing more fulfilling than seeing someone um, recognize, sit in the pain, deal with it, work through it, and then come out on the other side and find some way of channeling that. Right, right. Anything else you want to share with our audience? You know, I would want to just leave people with, um, I think, my new mantra, which is just get curious. Mm. Talk to your neighbor. You know, ask yourself, when's the last, well, now with COVID, I was going to say, ask yourself, when's the last time I invited someone different over for dinner? But Uh with COVID, we can't do that. But (laughs) we are all online in some way, shape or form. Mm-hmm. So now I think is a great opportunity to to dip your toe into some of these difficult conversations because you have the relative safety of doing it from your own home behind your device. And mm-hmm. that's a lot easier, I think, to approach that way than maybe sitting across somebody right you know, across from somebody who's different from you. So thank you so much for uh, joining us today. Um, we really appreciate it. And um, I'll also provide the links if people want to get in contact with you or explore the different trainings or services, supports that you offer. That would be great. Thank you so much. This was a lovely conversation. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Real Stories. The resources referenced by today's guest speaker will be included in the episode description. For more information about me, Dr. Megan Corredo, and my work with the story's trauma narrative intervention, please visit my website, www.storiesguide.com. Also, feel free to follow my story social media pages on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Remember that for every story of trauma and adversity, there is always a story of strength and resilience.